your work life, all of our work lives. Welcome to Work with Marty Nemco. Some people who want self-improvement prefer a deep dive into some particular technique. Other people like quick and dirty. Well, this segment is for those quick and dirty folks. As I think back on my now 5,500 career and personal coaching clients, I believe that these 10 items are most central to self-improvement. First, I hate to say this, put in the time, that there is no substitute for time on task. Working smarter takes you only so far. And chances are, if you're listening to a segment on self-improvement, you're probably already working about as smart as you can, yet you still feel the need to significantly improve. Whether you want to build on a strength or you want to remediate a weakness, your choice is to push harder or to be satisfied with modest growth. I don't necessarily criticize the latter, by the way. You know, it's called, there's actually a technical term for it, it's called satisficing. And it can be a wise approach. I mean, maybe your time could be better spent getting better at something else or taking care of necessities or, (laughs) heaven forbid, simply having fun. But if you are trying to self-improve, there really is no shortcut other than putting in the time. Another one that is a critical self-improvement must is to avoid what I call time sucks. That's what enables people to put in the time without working too many hours. Accomplishers, people who accomplish a lot, avoid such time sucks as excessive TV watching, excessive chatting, excessive clothes shopping when you already have more than enough clothes, video game playing, you can't, gotta make it to the next level, gotta make it to the next level, time-consuming sports like golf or sitting at a ball game. You know, I used to, when I grew up, a baseball game would take two hours. Now it's three and a half with all the commercials. Anyway, uh, or going to a second cousin's twice-removed third, third wedding in Kalamazoo. So avoiding time sucks is a way for people to, you know, pe- you, know you know, people you always think about and saying, how the hell did he or she get so much done? Well, very often they avoid a lot of those time sucks. So that's a second self-improvement must. First, putting in the time. Second, avoiding time sucks. A third one is focus on what you can control. Successful people, most successful people at least, spend very little time jawboning about their illness or about politics or about people they can't stand. They tend to focus on what is what I call in their sphere of influence. That's a crucial self-improvement must that doesn't require a personality transplant. So the first three, again, put in the time, avoid time sucks, focus on what you can control. The fourth one is to specialize. In our ever more complicated world, it is more difficult to be good enough as a generalist. You need to be at least relatively expert at some niche, like the generic marriage and family therapist could well suffer from the imposter syndrome because there is so much science and, frankly, especially so much art to marriage and family counseling. So unless you're unusually brilliant and hardworking, it's wiser to specialize in something. For example, interracial couples... You know, I was just listening to the commercial before, whatever it was, the promos for this before the show, and it was about drag queens. You know, maybe you specialize in drag queens. There's more than enough to become, become an expert just in that. Or transgender couples, people, couples, who, you know, or intellectually gifted kids, or 
physically abusive parents or men with stay-at-home wives. So being a specialist, unless you're brilliant and very hardworking, is a critical key to self-improvement and and, and curing the imposter syndrome and feeling like an expert. So many of my clients come in and say, I want to feel expert at something. Well, you can't be expert at something broad. You normally, unless you are genius uh, or at least brilliant, need to specialize. Okay, so the fifth of the ten self-improvement musts is to take what I call low-risk actions. People who ruminate too much end up having more fear and less accomplishment. So after just a little reflection and maybe a little research, follow that widely agreed-on key to success, ready, fire, aim. What I mean by that is it's far easier to revise your way to excellence than to think of it in the abstract. You need the feedback of, the fancy term is empiricism, to adjust what you're doing. I like to invoke the metaphor of, of someone who'd like to sail from San Francisco to Hawaii. Yeah, the person should plan, but after just a moderate amount of planning, that person would be wise to set sail. And because when they see the winds, when they're out there or the weather, they can adjust the plan. That person is much more likely to get to Hawaii faster than would somebody who does excessive planning. So the first five are put in the time, avoid time sucks, focus on what you can control, specialize, take low-risk actions. I've got five more, but I'd like to give out the phone number. If you or someone you care about has got a work problem, I do what are called workovers on this show, uh, and uh, the price is right, zero. So any kind of work-related problem is fair game. To be really honest, the harder the better, because I've been doing it a long time. I like a challenge. So the phone number here, work with Marty Nenko for a workover with no pummeling involved, usually 415-841-4134. That's 415-841-4134. The sixth of the 10 self-improvement musts is to spend time with people who bring out the best in you. Whether it's your boss or a romantic partner, a platonic friend, an activity partner, some people bring out the best in us while others drag us down. Of course, you can't always control who's in your life, but when you've got some discretion, spend time with those who help you, I like to use the term, flower. The seventh of the ten self-improvement musts is to take the time to find a fine mentor or three. That's um, a generous person who is successful and ethical in what you're trying to develop who is an overall winner. That kind of person is a treasure. And usually having a mentor like that is really prerequisite to succeeding in, unless you're really, you know, super brilliant. How do you find such a mentor? Ask a question of one or more people you respect. And if that person responds well, offer to be of help to that person in any way you can. After a while, if you do your part and you're lucky, your mentor will offer more help, maybe become your cheerleader, your champion, and be willing to open doors for you really critical. So, again, those top seven, put in the time. These are self-improvement musts. Put in the time. Avoid time sucks. Focus on what you control. Specialize. Take low-risk actions. Spend time, time with people who bring out the best in you. Take the time to find a, find a fine mentor or two. The eighth one is to chart your progress. That can be as simple as, like, next to your desk, hanging a hand-drawn thermometer that's got milestones on the side, you know, like when nonprofits are trying to raise money. And then color it in every time you uh, uh, you meet a, read a mile, reach a milestone, or give yourself a, a daily letter grade. You know, like from A to F, 
You can keep that grade to yourself, or you want to invoke social pressure, share it with your social media friends or your real friends. The ninth self-improvement must look inward. My unsuccessful clients tend to blame their setbacks mostly on what the current term is externalities. Their boss, the economy, their race, their gender. In contrast, my successful clients mainly look inward to see what, if anything, they need to do differently, like acquire a new skill or upgrade their attitude or stop their substance abuse or at least slow it down, revise their job target upward, downward, sideways, or maybe revise their job target to a new career that's better aligned with their natural abilities. And the tenth of the ten self-improvement musts, resolve to rebound. I know you've heard it before, but it's really true. Even highly successful people fail, very often fail a lot. But the difference between them and other people is that successful people tend to force themselves, yes, force themselves to rebound, not wallow. They see if there's a lesson to be learned from the failure, and then they resolve to succeed at something at least as big. At the risk of being personal, when I got let go as a columnist in the San Francisco Chronicle, after an hour, yeah, just an hour of feeling outraged, I actually yelled, I channeled the anger. I said, I'm going to show them. I'm going to go national. And that very night, I sent clips to 10 national publications. And since then, I've written a lot for such publications as Time, The Atlantic, and Washington Post. So, again, I'll go over the top 10. These are 10 self-improvement musts that are crucial to your success professionally and probably personally. Put in the time. Avoid time sucks. Focus on what you can control, what you can control. Specialize, take low-risk actions, spend time with people who bring out the best in you, take the time to find a fine mentor or two, chart your progress, look inward, and resolve to rebound. If you would like, that's good generic advice, but you ain't generic, you're a person. So if you'd like some custom adv- uh, customized advice for you, if you've got a work-related problem of any sort, the phone number for work over here at KALW and work with Marty Nemco, 415 841 4134, that's 415-841-4134. Last week, I um, did a segment on uh, on competition. I said, I only got through part of it, so I promised you I was going to complete it uh, this week. You know, today the evils of competition get a lot of media attention. It's argued that competition separates people and that our stressful world is better negotiated in community. Uh, it uh, it's often said that uh, that competition inhibits the cooperation that's so key to solving today's complex problems. It's said that competition yields too many losers. You know, usually in most competitions, there's one winner and like like job applicants. You know, there could be 50 job applicants and one person gets it. So, but I think today we pay inadequate attention to competition's benefits. And so, in a tiny attempt to address that, I'd like you to consider some admittedly anecdotal examples. But I believe they reveal a large truth, but I'm going to do that after the call, because I always like to prioritize you, my dear listeners, so I'm going to go to the phones, but I'll give out the phone number. If you have a work-related problem, I do what I call workovers here. The phone number, 415-841-4134. That's 415-841-4134. And now to the phones. Welcome to the show. It's your turn on the air. Uh, how can I help you? Hello. Hi. Um, I started a, a successful restaurant about uh-huh. 10 years ago. Uh-huh. And, um, but it's about time. I felt like it's time for me to change. Okay. And, um, but in the meantime, now my landlord is trying to force me out. Okay. And I have a very, um, 
fabulous lease. My lease is ridiculously low and includes utilities and all the stuff, so it's worth a lot of money for the next 10 years. Right. And I'm almost willing to go. I mean, I was thinking about selling the business, but it just doesn't feel right for him to try to take it from me. Well, if you've got a 10-year lease, it seems to me, you know, and if, and if unless he has a legitimate legal basis, and I'm no lawyer, mm-hmm. um, what you should probably do is, if you want to get out, is try to sell the business with that lease right. and maybe sell it to a, to a buyer who's got, you know... Uh, uh, who either will seem more imposing than you might be. Uh, I don't know if you are or you're not, because he's already threatening to pull this, you know, pull this game on you. Uh, and if if the person, if, since it's such a successful restaurant, it may be a more capitalized entity that would buy your restaurant, and the, your landlord may be more reluctant to uh, to try to push the lease on that new, you know, very well capitalized entity. Mm-hmm. Uh, is there any reason why that isn't the answer? No. <laughs> okay. Um, I mean, you know, I mean, it works for me because the rent is so low, so I can work very little hours and make money, you know, so it's very comfortable. But you want to get out, and so what you want, you're going to want to do is now you, you've got the rest. You know, restaurants, unfortunately, are, re, customer tastes are very fickle. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a restaurant that gets hot for a while can get cold as the next cool thing comes in, you know. Mm-hmm. Like Burmese re- food was nowhere three years ago, now it's hot. Peruvian was nowhere three years ago, now it's hot. You know, I don't know what the hell your restaurant is, but, uh, you know, you know, if you're successful, you want to get out anyway. You've got this hot 10-year lease that the, the, that the landlord is making noises. This sounds like a hell of a time to get out and sell, make a point of selling. I'm sure the kind of entity that would want to buy it um, is going to, uh, again, if you're going to be charging a pretty penny because it's successful and you've got this cool 10-year lease, um, that's going to be a pretty imposing buyer, and the landlord may say, uh, oh, okay, you've got a 10-year lease. Right, but the problem now is that we're already involved in litigation, so we have suits against each other. So I can't sell it while I'm in litigation. Well, you can. Uh, I'm, not, I'm no lawyer, but I'm guessing that if you disclose the litigation mm-hmm. and it becomes clear that you're a winner and you know, that you have the right to, you, that lease is valid, mm-hmm. then it may well be that the, uh, the new owner will buy it assuming, you know, assuming that litigation. Mm-hmm. Rather than waiting for the resolution, unless if your lawyer tells you, "Hey, this is you're going to win this. You're going to do. Let's take that variable off the table. Um, you know, let's finish this this stupid case. And when you win, then you'll have more clear value. There'll be less question marks. Mm-hmm. Do, is your professional judgment, or is your lawyer's, that you should wait to resolve this case, or or sell it uh, while the lit- you know with full disclosure to potential buyers about the litigation? Well, I'm a lawyer, so I've been doing it myself. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and you know they say what is it a, yeah a, yeah a, 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 what is it a bad lawyer rep, yeah. represents himself whatever so should you get a consultation from somebody yeah. who's hot in this space right yeah yeah mm-hmm. do it that's that's uh, that's very clear to me if you've been handling it yourself and you're a restaurateur who happens to be a lawyer mm-hmm. get find somebody who's an expert at contract law at minimum if not rest if not real estate lease law. And get that. Spend the hour. It's going to cost you the four hundred. You lawyers are over, way overcharged. But pay the damn four hundred. It'll be worth it for a one-hour consultation. Yes. Well, I've already consulted with someone, and yeah, but you do spend money before you win. You know. I'm, I didn't so. hear that. Say it again. I, did, I said I already consulted with lawyers 
but you do have to spend a certain amount even to win the case, even if you have a good case. Well, what's your, pro- your is your professional judgment? Mm-hmm. I mean, a good lawyer, if you've got a winning case, would mm-hmm. be very good at negotiating with the other side to come up with a settlement that saves, that doesn't just milk your milk you for hourly rate. You know, you could be the bad lawyers will keep it going and be argumentative and litigation prone, and meanwhile building up their six hundred dollar an hour rate. I mean, is you should your lawyer be doing a better job of trying to to uh, settle this case? Okay, well, thank you. What do you so think? Much. What do yeah. you? What do you really think? Uh, well, I mean, I have not kept. Oh, you know, I went to them for consultation, and then I continued uh, to handle it myself. Uh, okay. Yeah. So your butt needs to be in the right lawyer's office mm-hmm. and maybe get that person who's more neutral and less emotional about it yeah. to have a good negotiation or a mediator, you know, so that this, this case is not hanging over the value. You know, it could be costing you $100,000 in the value of the, of the business to sell, if if the if this unclear lawsuit is hanging over your head, but if you got a winning lawsuit, get the damn thing resolved, pay the little money, uh, either get a consult a consultant or have them mediated or have them litigated quickly. Mm-hmm. What do you think? Yep, I'll try it. All right, thanks for calling. Work with Marty and Emco. Thank you. Bye bye. Okay, I have to be really careful to say I am not a lawyer. I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a lawyer. But uh, yeah, um, but uh, at least common sense suggested that uh, that at least made sense, and I covered my legal butt. <laughs> Anyway, if um, uh, if you've got a work-related problem of any sort, uh, the phone number here at Work With Marty and Emco, 415-841-4134. That's 415-841-4134. I was just uh, saying that I was um, noting that uh, the evils of competition are getting a lot of media attention, and I ran through the arguments that are commonly made against competition. Um, and I'm obsessed with this thing about when there is a legitimate basis for balance, providing it. So I want to um, present a little bit of the other side why competition is maybe getting too bad a reputation, uh, frankly, especially here in the Bay Area. I'm going to give you a few anecdotes and see if they resonate with you. I recall when I was a teacher way back when, trying to get my students, these were some tough kids in Richmond, um, I tried to get them to memorize the multiplication table. And it's not easy for a group that's not very, uh, let's just say, intrinsically motivated (laughs) But when I told the class that we would divide into three groups tomorrow and that each member of the winning team would get an ice cream cone, you would have thought their life depended on it. They learned so much more quickly and had a ball. Does that surprise you? Well, that was competition. When I was in college, I took a course in which the professor at the first session said, everyone is going to get an A. I want you to take risks in this course without being afraid it's going to affect your grade. Well, although I'm a pretty intrinsically motivated guy, And even though it was a course I was interested in, it was a course on writing, expository writing, I actually ended up working less hard than I would have. And when I asked my fellow classmates, they said the same thing. Does that surprise you? Right. Third example. Some friends and I got together every week to play softball. And the competition was friendly, it was fun, it was motivating. But after a few weeks, a a progressive and outspoken person argued for not keeping score and just doing the game, playing the game for the intrinsic pleasure. Well, some of us may have had doubts. I had doubts. But none of us were brave enough or sure enough or we cared enough, I guess, to fight her. But in the coming weeks, fewer and people, fewer people showed up for the game until there were too few to, you know, to fill two teams. And interestingly, even then, no one suggested we go back to keeping score. Maybe that's just because in Berkeley, it's just not 
I don't know, politically correct to advocate for competition over collaboration. Does that experience surprise you that there would be fewer people showing up if there was they weren't keeping score? Think about, I'm looking at Debbie Kennedy, my board operator, who goes bowling. Could you imagine the bowling league staying alive if they never kept score? Never, if there was no scoring? She's shaking her head no. Right. Uh, I got one more example. Have one more example. Like I said, I should speak correct grammar. As, as a career counselor, I have had a number of clients who, in the confidentiality of my office, admitted that the lack of competition is demotivating. I frankly most often heard that from public school teachers, in which after two or three years, you have tenure for life, and you get paid exactly the same whether you're a marginal teacher or you're an excellent teacher. I've also heard that I have these clients who work for or, frankly, wish to work for other governmental organizations, entities, agencies, whatever. They like the idea that unless they commit some horrible violation, even if they do just the minimum rather than work hard and keep learning, they'll likely have their job forever. They're, 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 they're looking to not work very hard or not be good, and so the lack of competition makes them work less hard. Does that surprise you? Now, I have to admit that personally, I dislike having to compete. I am I'm intrinsically motivated to work hard, and I dislike the additional adrenaline that comes from having to compete. And like when I participate in like a group recreation, I'm not very competitive. I, I'm mainly interested in mildly competing with myself, mainly. I mean, I want to win, you know, if I play ball, but I don't, I'm not, if I lose, it's no big deal. Um, I'm mainly mildly competing with myself, just so I can get a little better. And in, I'm interested in being a good sport, contributing to everybody have a good time. But having said that, from where I sit, the pendulum seems to have swung too far. From on the one hand, the Oakland Raiders used to have the slogan, Just win, baby! Which implies that we should do whatever it takes to win, ethical or not. To the other, the pendulum is now the other side. We're devaluing competition so much in favor of the collaborative. We're all in this together kind of a mindset. So I'm wondering if, as with most things, balance is in order. So just a, you know, I think the balance of competition and collaboration is a good thing. Phone number, you want to work over, you have a work-related problem, 415-841-4134. That's 415-841-4134. Um, I was pleased that uh, for Psychology Today, I've just completed writing a four-part series on uh, uh, the, world, the, few, the world of 2040, uh, and there were four separate articles. One was on the workplace of 2040. One was what the average person is going to be like in 2040. One is what the psychotherapist, because it's psychology today, what the psychotherapist of 2040 is going to be like. And then what education is going to be like in 2040. And I thought I would share with you those. The first one, as I said, was the workplace of 2040. And again, this is just one possibility. Obviously, no. They say he who lives by the crystal ball eats broken glass. So clearly, I'd be, I could be wrong, but I think it's interesting, maybe even kind of fun to project. I, I started this this article with a comparison between computers and people. The computer, twenty four seven three sixty five. People, eight five two ten. That is like you know eight hours a day. Five days a week, two hundred and ten days, as opposed to twenty four seven, three sixty five for the computer, and that of course assumes that people don't take other days, like the marriage. What is it called? The Family and Medical Leave Act allows up to twelve weeks a year off, um, 
It also requires, I, was, I read this shocking statistic, that the average full-time worker works, guess how much, per out of an eight-hour day? Two hours and 53 minutes. By the way, I never cite statistics without having the citation ready for you. It's boring radio for me to give them to you, but anytime you want a the citation for any statistic I give on the air, email me. I am very responsive to email. My email address is mnemco, that's M as in Mary, or M as in Marty, you know, my first initial of my first name, and my last name, nemco, N, like Nancy, E-M, like Mary, K-O, at comcast.net. Okay, so... Computer, 24-7-365, people, 8-5-2-10 if you're lucky. The computer, it's a one-time hardware and software cost. People, weekly paychecks ad infinitum with raises expected. The computer, accurate. People, less so. The computer, knowledgeable, maybe even self-teaching. You know, machine learning, all that. People, variable. The computer never complains, never files workers' compensation lawsuits, never files sexual harassment lawsuits, never files discrimination lawsuits, never files wrongful termination lawsuits. People? Variable. The computer? Ever improving. Cost dropping. People? Variable. Cost increasing, including increasing government-mandated benefits. So, it's little surprise that the consensus is that over the coming decades, a large percentage of jobs will be lost to automation. Um, so I want to project what working in the corporation or a large nonprofit in 2040 will likely look like. Just, again, one projection. The first thing is a fancy technical term. It's called disintermediation. That's the technical term for cutting the number of mid-level employees. The term may be technical, but the effect on average workers is far from a technicality. At the top of the heap, there's going to be a small number of highly skilled and well-paid techies plus executives who are going to select the hardware and software and review uh, decisions that were um, made by the artificial intelligence computer that are either anomalous or objected to. For example, today in most large organizations, uh, human beings decide what to purchase. They're called supply chain managers or how to price items. They're marketing people or accounting people. And, uh, and human beings respond to customer service complaints. Um, but ever more of those decisions are going to be made by artificial intelligence because they, as I implied or said earlier, that they have a wealth of knowledge that's impossible for any one person to have. And they're automatically making ever better decisions because each decision that yields less cost-benefit is going to cause the algorithm in the computer to change. Now, there are going to be some low-level tasks that are going to be computer-assisted. For example, janitors are going to use a much-improved robotic vacuum cleaner, but their boss may be a computer. The next trend I see in the workplace of 2040 is what I call the incredible shrinking headquarters. The cost of office real estate, the ever more painful commutes, and improved video conferencing thanks to holography. There's going to be, instead of just seeing somebody on a screen, we're going to see them in three dimensions is going to cause headquarters to shrink. And most workers are going to end up working at home. Also, business trips. They're going to be grossly cut because of that great super video conferencing where you can see each other in three dimensions. It's going to be more and more like real life. The third trend I see in the workplace of 2040 is regarding pricing. 
Because automation and other factors are going to continue, unfortunately, to hollow out the middle class, most organizations are going to produce products and services that can be sold cheaply, you know, at a price that even people who are living on a part-time, low-paid job, maybe plus a universal basic income, can afford. And a much smaller percentage of companies are going to develop products for those uh, uh, highly paid tech stars and executives. But many of those people... I believe they're going to come to realize that the benefits of a 4,000-square-foot house or a vacation condo that they rarely visit or their breakdown-prone, service-hogging BMW or Mercedes aren't worth it. And indeed, they often (laughs) add to stress. And those stressed people are likely going to pay instead for stress reducers, like hiring more personal assistants or buying what I'm calling an immersion room where they can experience the world in IMAX passively, just sitting there, or if they've got the energy left after their long day, as a protagonist in an adventure in the jungle or climbing Mount Everest or diving in the Great Barrier Reef or soaring to galaxies beyond. The next um, element of the workplace of 2040 that I'm projecting is that hiring is going to be heavily automated. The resume is invalid. The interview is invalid. References are invalid. And they're also subject to accusations of racism, sexism, ageism. They're going to be largely replaced by online simulations of the job's common difficult tasks. And to avoid a shill taking the test, because they're going to be doing it at home, each keystroke would be fingerprint sensitive, and iris recognition software would verify that it's the applicant, not a shill, looking at the screen. The next part of the workplace of 2040 that I'm projecting is about compensation reviews. Just as with hiring, it's going to be mainly automated, based on the employee's performance on validated metrics. And as with other decisions made by artificial intelligence, if an employee, of course, is unhappy with the computer's decision, he or she could could appeal to a live person. Now, some prognosticators, the fancy word, assert that new technology always creates more jobs than it kills. But I'm afraid that this time it may be different. Agriculture, manufacturing, they're ever more automated. And I remember hearing about a farm that had no people, a lettuce farm in Japan, no people at all. And ever smarter, self-teaching, artificial intelligence-driven computers are threatening even jobs that require subjective judgment. And in our information age, most products are going to be sold, they're going to be sold that are like in bits and bytes, so that unlimited copies of that software can be reproduced with a push of the button. No employees needed. I mean, I, I know that employers, at least the savvy employers, recognize the trade-off between automation's efficiency and the resulting decline in employment that thereby reduces the public's ability to buy products or services. But the problem is that very few individual companies can afford to forego automation in the hopes of long-term societal benefit. And that's true if only because long after that societal benefit accrues, the company will have been put out of business by more efficient companies that, thanks to automation, produce better products at lower cost. So the, the company that's resisting automation in an attempt to save some jobs may well end up costing 100% of its employees their jobs. The answer may lie in, 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 in having a society 
that's based not on materialism, but on creative outlet, on relationships and hobbies. That way, a person may need only a modest part-time job, maybe plus some universal basic income, to live a satisfying life. Anyway, those are my thoughts on the workplace of 2040. Again, I'd like to give out the phone number. If you have a work-related problem, I'd be happy to help you. The phone number here at Work with Marty Nemco and KALW, 415-841-4134. That's 415-841-4134. The second part in my four-part series for psychology today on 2040 would was on, uh, it is on, just came out two days ago, uh, is on what the average person's life is going to be like in 2040. And it's very career-related, so it's certainly appropriate for the show. Um, as I've said or implied, there is a near consensus that automation and offshoring and part-timing is going to result in a significant net loss of jobs in the coming decades. A generous universal basic income may not be the answer, because even if you tax successful corporations and fat cats at 100%, There might not be enough money to provide a livable income for the many, many millions of Americans and billions of people worldwide who aren't going to be able to sustainably find and keep decent-paying work. Besides, giving cash instead of work ignores that people need work to feel of value. And at the minimum, staying busy avoids people worrying too much, you know, and troublemaking. There was an old saw that say, like, uh, idle hands are the devil's workshop. The foundational solution may lie in creating, as I said before, a less materialism-based society in which people find more of their life's value in creative output, in relationships, in recreation. But that is a radical change in mindset. Maybe that's unrealistic to accomplish in adults. So maybe we'd be wise to begin by educating kids and their parents about the wisdom of that. And that would increase the chances of the public of 2040 accepting a very low level, an affordable level of universal basic income. So maybe some in cash and maybe some by making available very low-cost housing, uh, food, medical care. Like I can envision apartment buildings with tiny apartments, therefore cheap, that are communal, you know, that communal cafeteria-style eating, uh, having nurse-centric healthcare on-site. It's kind of like, you know, even at Harvard and Stanford, they, that's what they do. It's good enough for Harvard and Stanford students. It should be enough for people who are on a guaranteed basic income. I'll call them mini-communities. And I'd put them, I'd guess they would be end up being in walkable areas and near low-cost mass transit. And to, to cut the chances of those mini-communities turning into those, remember those slum high-rises of earlier decades? There would have to be, in my mind, a rich program of social activities that would build cohesion and pleasure in those many communities. And a plan like that could be affordable with, to be honest, heavy but not hopefully not eviscerating taxation of corporations, the wealthy, and the middle class. Now, of course, many other people are going to be able, with their income and their fa- maybe their family support, to live a higher-level lifestyle. <coughs> but I predict that within the next two or three decades... Most Americans are going to live as I just described. So what might a typical week in the life of such a person look like? As today, the person get the kids off to school and then to maybe a 20-hour-a-week job, maybe a, a single position in the... It could be in the private, nonprofit government sectors, or it could be a patchwork. Some hours 
in a job like that, maybe some in simple self-employment like helping wealthier people with their newborn, child care, personal assisting, computer tutoring, elder companionship. But more of their life would be spent on avocations, maybe sports, creative outlets, or being with friends and family. I would guess that on average, people are going to end up happier and healthier in such a society than in the current American dream. Keep up with the Joneses. He or she who dies with the most toys wins. And the poor should do better. With the available work distributed more broadly, everyone will have some sort of work for, say, 20 hours a week, even if it's a government-created work project administration type job. Now, I could be dead wrong about all this. Like, for example, the cost of all that could eat our seed corn, which would leave no money for corporations and for the wealthy and for the government to create jobs, to produce products, provide services. And 20 hours of work per week could still leave too much time on people's hands, which could lead to the aforementioned, let's just say, mischief. Uh, Or most decent-paying jobs could be simply beyond the many millions of people who lack the wherewithal to be, for example, high-performing knowledge workers. Or the the bite-the-hand-that-feeds-you syndrome could result in social unrest, if not downright insurrection. But even if this scenario I'm, I'm proposing is wrong... It does seem important that we start talking about the issue now when there's time to prepare. And when, like during today's time of record low unemployment, more of us can be more rational and less desperate. So what do you think of what I'm predicting here? You want to propose a different scenario or solution? Give a call. The phone number here at Work with Marty Nemco for that or for a workover, 415-841-4134. That's 415-841-4134. The um, third segment of um, my four-part series in psychology today on uh, 2040, not surprisingly, because it is psychology today, is the publication, is the psychotherapist of 2040. And again, this is just one possibility. Of course, in my mind, psychotherapists include and all sorts of counselors are likely still going to be in demand in 2040, and that's because any job that requires subjective judgment is tough to automate. Plus, people are always going to want to talk with someone about their problems. But the work of a psychotherapist in 2040 is likely going to change dramatically. And here is, again, just one potential vision. In advance of the first session, the therapist or a client-customized holographic virtual 3D counselor will receive a data file on the client consisting of the client's brain scan and the results of a cotton swab DNA test and a blood test, plus the client's answers to a well-validated online new client questionnaire. And based on all of that, the client's file is going to contain a a suggested counseling strategy that would be created by this artificial intelligence computer such as a structure for the first session. Again, suggested the therapist will have the right to, you know, overrule, of course. But uh, suggested counseling strategies for the first session, including maybe questions the therapist might ask and comments that the the therapist might make. And the recommendations may also include a drug that's customized to that client's genetics and their physiology. At the beginning of the session, and with the ever-worsening traffic, it's ever more likely to be on video... The therapist is going to listen and ask questions, kind of like what we what happens today, except it would be informed by that uh, artificial intelligence set of recommendations. 
And at somewhere, one or more points during the session, or even afterwards, the therapist is going to enter keywords and phrases into the computer to get additional insights that come from the artificial intelligence computer, which the therapist can then elect, elect is the operative word, to incorporate into you know, later comments and questions and the homework assignment that they would give to their clients. Having therapy AI-assisted should improve the efficacy of therapy while reducing cost. That's the holy grail. Probably fewer and shorter sessions should be needed. Typical might be a one-hour first session, followed by a half-hour session, followed by a few 15-minute check-ins that occur ever less often. But despite the reduced cost, I'm projecting that psychotherapy is going to be affordable to the relative few because automation, as I said, offshoring and temping are likely going to continue to hollow out the middle class. So I see third-party paying being the norm. And probably the payer is going to be the government because it seems to be that uh, the U.S. is moving towards single-payer health care. Just listen to the debate last night. In light of the changing demographics, the media bias towards socialism, and in turn, changing voting patterns. I believe that we're still likely more than two decades away from when patients can get effective psychotherapy completely from an app and a drug. Well, I wouldn't bet my life on it. Already this year, mental health apps like Wobot, W-O-E-B-O-T, Pacifica, and uh, Duprexis, which requires a therapist as an assistant, are really popular and they're highly rated by consumers, and they're, they are demonstrating good efficacy in randomized trials. And, of course, apps are dramatically less expensive than a therapist while providing 24-7, 365 access wherever you happen to be. So if you're a future therapist or other counselor, it couldn't hurt to have a plan B. Anyway, those are my thoughts about the psychotherapist of 2040. So if you have an opinion about what I'm proposing for the workplace of 2040, what the average person's life's going to be in 2040, or the psychotherapist of 2040, or you've simply got a work-related problem. Not simply. It's probably far from simple. You've got a work-related problem. You're either unemployed, well-employed and still unhappy, self-employed, government-employed, uh, whatever kind of work-related problem, even if it's a relationship that is impeding your your career, all that's fair game and reasons to call for what I call a workover, where I try to help you with your work problem. The phone number here at Work with Marty Nemco and KALW, 415-841-4134. That's 415-841-4134. The fourth and final segment of my four-part series in psychology today about 2040 is education. And, of course, so core to being prepared for good careers is education. So again, it seems relevant to this show. And again, it's just one possibility. No one, you know, as I just said a moment ago, he who lives by the crystal ball eats broken glass. So I am humble in saying that I am far from sure this is right, but I think it's fun and maybe helpful to project. So education has long been held up as a bulwark of hope for an improved society. For example, reducing the achievement gap. Unfortunately, that promise of education remains largely unfulfilled, with the achievement gap is about as wide as ever, despite $22 trillion spent to close it. By the way, again, if you want citations for any of these assertions, just email me. You will get those. I will email you them back. My email address, mnemco at comcast.net. That's M as in Marty. Nemco, my last name, N-E-M-K-O at comcast.net, and I will send that to you. Anyway... 
And as ever more jobs require high-performance information economy skills, the need for dramatically improved education is growing. So it's no surprise that for decades now, there have been calls for education's reinvention. But there are powerful organizations that have a vested interest in the status quo, and they have successfully heretofore stalled major changes in education. But I am not fettered by such constraints, so what I'm going to share with you is what I believe would be a dramatically more effective education system, which by 2040 could even become realistic. First, I predict that education will be mandatory from age three. Students would be placed in classes not by age, but by competence and potential. Because of traffic and because more parents will find it challenging to every day get their kids to school, uh, even with a school bus, partly because of traffic, partly because people are ever more frazzled, busy, and not necessarily so efficacious, especially for older kids, there's going to be what I call a holographic option in which the kid can, quote, attend school from home, you know, with a whole, with or their behavior rendered holographically, uh, their participation, you know, their, their body movements, their words, everything, um, you know, and they're, they're in just in general, their whole class participation will be rendered virtually. The beginning of the school day would be spent on physical activity, usually a team activity, a socially oriented activity, so that kids' excess energy can be dissipated before making them sit and learn. And, of course, it would also provide kids with opportunities for social development, which, of course, is important. And, yeah, for pure fun. Part of the school day would be spent on interactive modules that students would complete at their own pace. And those could be as simple as, you know, video-enhanced individualized math lessons, or they could be as complex as a virtual reality simulation in which a team, probably, of students have to reinvent a blighted community or negotiate their way through the Amazon jungle, what you know could be called next-generation edutainment. And those simulations, which, again, they could be with virtual reality headsets, which I'm sure by 2040 are not going to be clunky, um, and we're simply just plain old two-dimensional online simulations and demonstrations, like, for example, of science pheno- experiments, science phenomena, that would enable all students, rich and poor, to experience extensive, immersive activities that are simply infeasible to provide in real life to all those thousands of schools across the country. The teachers would be what I call super teachers. These are, again, holographic versions of the most effective and enjoyable teachers who would be selected from a worldwide pool. These would be like the very best teachers in the world, and that's going to ensure that every student in all schools get world-class instruction. Now, live, you know, I recognize the importance of the human touch, so paraprofessionals would be there live in the classroom to provide the human touch, to manage classroom discipline, and answer student questions. The curriculum would also be reinvented. It would replace what I call low-payoff content like ancient history, quadratic equations, the intricacies of Shakespeare, stochastic processes in chemistry, and, frankly, foreign language, which is very difficult to learn in school. And all that low-payoff content would be replaced with, for example, critical thinking, financial literacy, communication and conflict resolution. Now, you know, I'm not saying that academic stuff would be forever not taught, But it strikes me that the survival skills that I've just described are more important. And so the academic stuff, you know, like like the intricacies of Shakespeare, 
or physics or calculus could be taught in the post-high school modules. I don't think there'll be traditional universities, but there'll be post-high school modules that can, people can can participate at home and get their social college social life and community resources like community swimming pools and the like. But they can do that as students require or want. Much of what I'm proposing here, frankly, could be implemented today. Except for the aforementioned, I'll just call them entrenched interests and beliefs. For example, the conservative belief that a nation of live teachers, ranging from excellent to poor, is better than all all superstar virtual teachers. But there's no question that education cries out for reinvention. And exploring bold visions, I mean, this is just merely one, would seem to be crucial if education is ever to fulfill its promise as edu- as society's savior. In any case, those are the four segments in my four-part series in psychology today um, on uh, uh, the life in 2040, the workplace, the average person's life, psychotherapist, and um, and education. Um, hope you found that interesting. Let's go right to the phones. Welcome to Work with Marty Nemco. It's your turn on the air. Uh, how can I help you? Boy, I can hardly hear you, Marty. You can hardly uh, hear me. Uh, yeah, I don't know why. I don't know why. Okay. Oh, yeah, is your, radio, is your radio on? Turn your radio down. Well, I can hear you better on the radio. <laughs> I, I don't think so. I think if you turn the radio down, you'll end up hearing me better. I, I tried that. Okay. I, I will trust you. Ask me what. Okay. how can I be of help. Let me move. Okay, I'm turning my radio away. Okay, there we go. So, um, yeah, boy, uh, that's, that's uh, kind of a brave new world you've got outlined there for us. I can't think of many parts of that that's not totally turned my stomach uh, to not have a live teacher, a person to relate to, in teaching and in psychotherapy, um, I just... I didn't I say that. I, mean, I must that. correct you before you go on. I said that there'd be a live paraprofessional in every classroom, and I said that psychotherapists would be there. They would just be artificial intelligence assisted. I don't know if you heard heard it correctly. Yes, I, I did. Um, I, um, I, I... You know, every time... Okay, look at the advent of uh, psychotherapeutic medicine. Um, this it started Prozac was supposed to be the golden age. Um, depression would be um, outlawed. These guys would find out what what chemicals would change the neurotransmitters and through theory introduce these things. Well, that's not exactly what happened. They took plant forms and tweaked them a little bit so that they could patent them and then release them on the market and. Um, frankly, their administrations uh, almost killed me. Um, I was working in, uh, in, in um, uh, theoretical mathematical neuroscience, and I quit because I could see that only with this, a capitalistic uh, point at this point, it would be turned into, I mean, what could possibly go wrong, putting, putting electrodes in people's heads? I, I, I just... I there's a there's a program on the ethical uses of technology that's happening. I I just heard about it yesterday and missed the webinar and I want to tune into that. I um 
I, I, it, it looks like basically a high-tech um, um, feudal society where there's many people mumbling around. I mean, it, it, the introduction of, I know it's not for everybody, but we had the academic thing in high school, and the introduction of, of um, uh, chemistry the, uh, and uh, the physics and um, Shakespeare and teaching Walden saved my, my life. You know what? I'm going to end because you're, you've you um, you've you've covered a lot of ground here. On that positive note, I'm going to make you take your comment off the air. Um, there is no question, you know, from from the early days on, technology has always had its upsides and downsides, and we of course have a tremendous obligation to uh, uh, to try to use it responsibly. And while absolutely to take his first example, Prozac, and this is not related to career, but I'll just take you know, I don't want to be non-responsive. While, yes, it was proposed by the author of the damn book, Peter Kramer, uh, listening to Prozac, which was that it was going to be the answer, it has been a of moderate help to a significant millions of numbers of people. On this radio program, I interviewed Dr. Thomas Insel, who was the head of the National Institutes of Mental Health, and he said that for you know roughly two-thirds of people, Prozac had made significant improvement. No magic pill, pardon the pun. And indeed, it has side effects, and sometimes the benefits wear off. But if we end up being a Luddite and simply look back to the old days in which there wasn't technology, and with selective hearing, when I you know, mentioned that there would be a live paraprofessional in every classroom and that the uh, psychotherapist would have a human being, he didn't hear any of that. All he heard was the word technology. I think we are really, you know, Thomas Kahneman, the very famous cognitive scientist, um, talks about um, level one and level two thinking. The level one thinking is very reflexive and very impulsive. It's what first comes to mind. And level two is the more reflective thought. I'm very worried in our, both politically, you know, you heard he politicized this. He was talking about capitalism and we brought that into it. Um, you know, because obviously technology existed in the Soviet Union as well under communism. It's not like this is a capitalist uh, entity. But I think that we are so angry um, on let's just say on one or other side politically that um, we are tending to be reflexive and guilty of level one thinking and if there's anything I would wish on, on myself and on the public is that we be a little more reflective and less reflexive um, regarding technology, regarding politics regarding difference you know instead of it's easy to devolve into just spouting mantras um, and ultimately, society is not better with mantras. It's better with reflective thought. Let's go back to the phones. Um, no, okay, I, I won't. Um, all right. Um, then I will end with, uh, there is, again, I always like to present views that are not, yeah, we've got a call. Let's go to the calls. Let's Welcome to work with Marty Nemco. It's your turn on the air. I do want to prioritize the listeners always. So uh, we only have about a minute or two left. What is Briefly, what is your question? Yeah, so the question yeah. is, just got just got let go today. I see. <laughs> out of the blue. So, so not every day. They get, my question is, they gave me a separation agreement to sign. Yes. And I wondered if, like, why, what that is all about, if I should sign it. They gave me one week severance, which they'll release if I sign it, and I just... 
I don't know what to think about it. Right. I'm not a lawyer, so I'm not allowed to give legal advice, but I'll give you a sure. generic a, a generic minute lecture on there. There's a number of things. Very often they want you, they're going to give, throw you a bone, like a little a, a bit of severance to avoid you having to sue or you're objecting or whatever. Sure. So sure. normally there are a number of terms that can be negotiated uh, if you have any leverage at all. Um, which would be the following. It could be they're paying your health care, like COBRA, for the period. They could make your severance a lot longer than one week. They could agree to give you a positive reference or at least a neutral reference. They could agree to lay you off rather than you're quitting so that you can get unemployment or if they were firing you for cause, um, to agree to, to not, because firing your cause, you may not be eligible for unemployment. Those are, that's the world's shortest course. And so if you don't feel comfortable assessing your your uh, viability in those regards, it's normally very wise to show that separation agreement to an employment lawyer. This is not rocket science. Uh, you don't need to spend top dollar on this, but it would be worth the, the one-hour consultation fee for an average employment lawyer, not your generic lawyer, but a lawyer who specializes in employment. Um, okay. I do know there's a firm, a very famous, wonderfully regarded firm, Rudy and somebody, but you don't need to see Mark Rudy, who is eminent, too expensive, but one of his junior associates might be fine. Okay. Or for free, next Wednesday, you can you can call your legal rights at 7 o'clock and get some free advice about this. Okay. Um, That's a good idea, too. Sure. Okay. All right. So I will thank you very much for calling work with Marty Nemco. Okay. Well, that is the um, that is the show for this week. Um, I want to thank my board operator, board operator, Debbie Kennedy, and, of course, all of you uh, for listening and calling in. Please join me again next Thursday at 7. You can call in for a workover. Plus, I'm going to talk with two-time Pulitzer Prize-winning editorial cartoonist Michael Ramirez. Um, I, I always like to, you know, I've done these, what is it really like to be on? I've done everything from psychiatrists to prostitutes. But after almost 30 years, I've never done an editorial cartoonist. Cartoonists are very influential because they say a lot in a very short amount of space. And because it's visual, we may remember more and maybe we're influenced more than we might be with text in any event. Until then, this is Marty Nemco reminding you that we find comfort among those who agree with us. Growth among those who don't. For the archives of Dr. Marty Nemco's articles, information on his 11 books, including his new one, Careers for Dummies, plus how you can consult privately with Marty, go to M-A-R-T-Y-N-E-M-K-O.com. That's Marty Nemco, N-E-M-K-O.com. And you can join Marty again next Thursday evening. Well, not next Thursday evening because we have the Capital Steps special and it's 4th of July. So it's the 11th at 7. For work with Marty Nemco here at 91.7 KALW, San Francisco.